Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Neill. I'm a Canadian expat living in Phuket, Thailand, and Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company. Our intentions of this podcast is to connect with people living on the island and share their stories with you. On today's podcast, we have our first signed UFC fighter Mike Malott. He is a recent winner of the Contender Series. Uh, he's currently fighting at Alpha Male Gym in Sacramento, and he's also Canadian, just as myself. And funny story, he used to be my neighbor and lived behind uh, behind my house at the age of five. I think I was ten, um, but we have never seen each other since. So we're gonna jump right into that podcast, and let's start with Mike. Okay, Mike. Um, thanks for joining us from Canada. I know it's late over there. It's about 1030. So we're going to try to keep this, uh, short and sweet. Um, let's just jump right into it. You got the big win. Tell us how you're feeling. And, uh, what was that experience like winning the Dana Waits contender series? Hey, thanks for having me on Brendan. Um, yeah, it was, it was wild winning that night. This has kind of been one of the most fun weeks of my life since winning that winning that fight and getting that contract, just, uh, you know, celebrating and stuff. But, uh, yeah, the fight went really well. The fight went about as well as you can hope a fight can go. I didn't get hit. It was 30 side, 39 second submission, got the choke, got the guillotine, which is, you know, kind of like a trademark team alpha male technique and finish. So getting into the UFC after watching, you know, Faber's entire career of him guillotining guys was, you know, pretty cool using that same technique to get in. Um, but yeah, I, I felt, uh, I felt really confident in that fight. Like, uh, that's the, obviously my first time fighting in that cage and it's the cage I've been wanting to fight in since I was 12, 13 years old, but I felt really at home when I got in there, you know, early in my fighting career, I used to think about fighting, feeling like you're jumping into a pool like as soon as it starts going you're jumping into a cold pool in that there's like weird physical sensations sounds feel different you're like hyper tunnel vision focused on things and just the adrenaline kind of takes over and that's really weird it almost feels like you're watching yourself doing it early on in fighting but I feel so comfortable and confident now that it, it really didn't feel that different from yep. from sparring or training in the gym like there have been times where I was more nervous going in for sparring than I felt in that fight what, what about what was there and I think anyone going into the contender series could relate to the, relate to this. Was there any pressure that if I lose, that's the end of my career? Does do these thought were these thoughts going through your mind? Of course, there's like a little bit of, you know, every once in a while, the what if I lose jumps into my head. Like it's going to be a long road back to here. It was a long enough road to get here in the first place, and it's not like I had some massive record or anything anyway. So I'm like, what if? you know, what if what I did to this guy happened to me, you know, what, it, how, how would I react? Um, it's, it's a, a little more difficult being on contender series in some ways than making your debut straight into the UFC, because there's less room for error. You know, obviously I don't want to lose my debut. Nobody wants to lose their first fight or any of their first three fights, but worst case scenario, you worse, you lose your first fight. You've got a four fight contract, right? So you're going to have another shot. You can redeem yourself on contender series. It's one and done. It's like, if you screw this opportunity up, you're going to have to probably put three or four wins back together over the next year or whatever it is to get back to the same point. So 
there's definitely added pressure in that way. But I also felt like there was a, I also felt like there was less pressure in a way in that I knew I was pretty close to getting into the UFC and I could either, um, one path to get into the UFC, our plan was winning the CFFC belt. So I was told I was next in line for that, fighting for that belt. Um, but the champion after winning it wanted to sit on the sidelines for the next six months to see if the UFC would call him. So like, Oh, we'll just get you like a a fight so you can stay busy. I'm like, well, fuck, like, what do I, you know, of course, like I want to fight. I didn't want to wait till next year to fight. But at the same time, I'm like, what am I getting out of this fight other than like, you know, you know, a a paycheck and, and it's not like a massive paycheck or anything. So it was, you know, it was almost like I was protecting my, title shot in a way where I'm like shit you know there's a little bit of pressure in that you can't screw that up either because it's the same thing as contender if you lose you 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 know you win your one step forward you lose your three steps back type thing right so uh with this one it was like look Dana's right there all I have to do is beat this guy up if I beat this guy up if I fight the way that I normally fight I'm in I know I know they're gonna like my style so yeah you uh, got the right eyes on you at the right the right moment and uh um Faber was right there beside him I think uh Kind of to to give that nudge, to give that push of a hey 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 check check out my uh, prodigy here, and uh, I, I think yeah. that worked. And um, did you feel any extra pressure with those eyes on you watching, or were you were you so focused that all that did not come to the into the picture? Those eyes being like Sean Shelby yes. and Dana White. Yeah, I mean there was definitely a little more pressure, but like I said, it also it also relieved pressure in that I knew what the path was. I'm like, look, win this fight, impress these guys, you're in the show. Versus, you know, how many wins is it going to take outside the UFC? Even winning the CFFC belt is no guarantee I'm getting straight into the show. Maybe I'd have to defend that a couple times or wait for Dana White's looking for a fight or something and fight on that. This one, it's like, just show up, win this fight. All my fights before this point had been wins, stoppage wins within the first two minutes, all my wins. So I'm like, look, I have what they're looking for as far as finishing goes. I'm not a guy that squeaks out decisions. I'm not a guy that plays fights safe and tiptoes through and barely outpoints guys and shoots for takedowns and stalls. Like, I'm looking to finish guys. I, I love finishing fights. I love sinking in chokes. I love heel hooking people, arm locking people, dropping guys, knocking people out. Like, I love that stuff. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like as real of a win if you beat a guy by decision. I mean, if you beat the shit out of a guy and he just somehow survives, that's cool. But if all you did was like play the game a little better than somebody else, I'm like, did you beat the guy up though? Like, is he scared of you? So the guy that, that you were fighting at the contender series, that was his style. His style, his style was to wrestle, take down and smother you. Um, that's kind of what, what happened in that fight. You went in with a one-two. He went for the shoot, but immediately you 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 cinched up that that guillotine. At any point during um, that process in the fight, were you afraid of burning your arms out? Now he has top control. What was going through your mind? So he definitely does like to get on top and and pressure guys, but he's also a pretty high level striker. Like respect to the kid, he's pretty well rounded. Kid was seven and zero for a reason. He was good. Um, I didn't think he'd shoot so early. I thought that you know the I thought the biggest disparity in our game was our, our ground game and grappling skill. So I thought he'd try and keep it standing a little bit longer. 
in studying his style and his studying his fights, he tends to level change and shoot when he's pressured and moving backwards. So when you put pressure on him, you blitz him and he's, he's caught off guard. He'll, he'll level change to shoot, which isn't necessarily a bad, you know, a bad plan, but I feel really comfortable defending takedowns, attacking guys off of shots. Like I missed a big left hook kind of walking through to Southpaw. Um, he level changed, hit my hips. But when he level changed, I didn't really, you know, intentionally do it. It's just something we drill a lot at Alpha Male. We're a very wrestling-based gym. I hit him with my hips pretty hard. So his head and neck level changed, but I hit him with my hips. So he kind of went back on heels. So he wasn't even really grabbing me after he level changed. I locked up front headlock, and I felt like I was the one in control. So I started sitting and trying to tilt him to his shoulder a little bit. <clears throat> And the way he kind of like sat, he extended his neck, he like sat his weight back to not get tilted, right? And I just felt like, okay, you know what? I can shoot this arm really deep. I got, yeah. I got my guillotine arm in about as deep as you can get. Yeah, I was, I was and watching that when, when you pulled guard. What could is that fair to say? You, you basically pulled guard at that point. Kinda, I mean, yeah. I, I was watching that live, and it looked real deep right away from when you cinched it up. But I also heard on a, um, uh, in the interview or possibly uh, another podcast you did with, I believe, uh, the Halton News. Uh, this was on YouTube as well. Um, you said your, your arms were only at about, you're, you're only burning at about 60%, so you didn't have any fear of actually burning out at that, that point. No, I, I didn't feel like I was squeezing crazy hard. You know, you don't want to, we're, we're, 30 seconds into a fist fight. I don't want to sell out a hundred percent with 14 and a half minutes left in a fight, gas my arms out and then, excuse me, have to, uh, excuse me, have to fight for another 14 minutes. Right. Um, so I, there was, I, I only really kind of started squeezing once I knew the choke was done, but it was pretty tight from the beginning. I didn't feel like I needed to squeeze that hard. And, um, you know, you don't want to squeeze on something that's not there. So once I, I kind of tilted him to the side and ended up posting on my elbow and like hip heisting out, getting back up to my knees. So we were facing each other in essentially a front headlock. And I had the, yeah. the choke already sunk in. Once I pressured him onto his heels and threw my top leg over, that's when I was like, okay, this thing is about as tight as you're ever going to get a guillotine. Like now we can start squeezing. And by the time I started adding the actual squeeze, he was already tapping. Yeah. So I felt you know, you, you want to be efficient, right? Am I, am I squeezing hard on something that's probably like 95% going to get me the finish or am I like flipping a coin here? Like, Oh, I really hope this, this works. I'll put all my muscle into it and hope it works. Like I'm not, I'm not gassing my arms out with that. But on the flip side, I felt like I was in really good shape for this one. I love going for chokes. So I try squeezing in the gym sometimes if it's, you know, decently tight and sometimes i'm like you know what this is a time to burn your arms out and then have to figure it out like all right there's four minutes left in this round and this darts choke or this you know whatever is decently tight squeeze hard if you get it he taps if you don't your arms are gassed figure it out like you've got another three and a half four minutes to survive and and learn how to stay attacking with kind of mm -hmm. dead arms almost when you're now you you have about uh seven seven professional fights um yeah, uh nine nine professional how aware are aware are you of the time during those fights so especially as you're getting into the later rounds and maybe um it's it's gone to the ground and 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 this comes back to to the point of burning your arms out and and whatnot are you completely aware of the time 
at all times when you're when you're in those later rounds and you are grappling on the ground? Well, for later rounds in in the fight, I've only been in the later rounds once. Yeah. So um, as far as that goes, like you know, uh, we'll we'll see a little more as we get there. I'm not necessarily thinking about the time, but I've always kept. I, I've never been like a points guy, but I've always tried. Ever since I started training, I've tried to keep like a 10-8 or a point system like jujitsu in mind. I'm like, where am I? Am I losing? Am I winning? Like, what do I need to do to make sure I'm like winning this round? And you know, you're not winning every round in the gym, obviously. But I try to keep that in mind. So while I'm not consciously thinking about the time, I feel like I'm aware of it. I'm like, okay, am I losing this round? And you know, you hear from the, the corner like 30 seconds left. All right, I need to turn it up on this guy. I need to get a takedown. I need to land something big. I need to make sure I'm pressuring him. Is it close? I need to try and take over. Um, I obviously knew it was pretty early in the fight, like I was saying, as far as uh, the choke goes. So, you know, the time was. <clears throat> was in my head, like, don't, you know, like I said, don't gas the arms out too much doing something stupid. It's not going to be there. But, um, you know, I wasn't thinking about it as if like, okay, I can't squeeze because I have 14 minutes left. Like yeah. I can't afford to burn this energy. That wasn't what it was going through my mind. And, um, you win the Dana White contender series. Um, it was quite interesting after that, that win, it seemed like you were going through a mix of an emotional roller coaster of, did I win? Is there another round? What the hell's going on? Is, is that's kind of what I read from the body language. Is that correct? Yeah. It kept kind of like coming in waves. So I got up and like, <laughs> I never like pound my chest, but I got up and like <laughs> pounded my chest. And then it kind of like hit me. I was like, I kind of like grabbed my head for a second. I'm like, fuck, I just did that, man. Like that's, that happened. So I was excited about getting the submission. And then I kind of, you know, walked around for a second, chirped something at Faber, said some, said some stuff to uh, Dana White. I, I leaned down to Dana White and Sean Shelby between the, the What did you say to them? They're at the table. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey guys, this is a pretty cool spot. Like <clears throat> you guys hiring, I'm looking for a job. I'd love to work in this building again. And they just kind of like laughed, you know, just, you know, let them know I, I, I want that contract, but uh, do it in like a sarcastic, stupid way. Yeah. And, uh, and then I got back up and turned to my corner and was about to say like, nice, man, I'm, I'm glad we did this. And it kind of hit me. I'm like, Oh shit. Like everything we did the last three months led to this and it's over. It's not, you know, you, 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 you prepare so intensely for a physical war, both physically in preparation and mentally, right. I put a lot of work into this and I was mentally prepared for a war. I was mentally prepared for being 12 minutes in and having had my ass kicked and having to figure it out with three minutes left and finding a way to win, you know? And it's like, there has to be a certain level of acceptance as well. Like you have to accept the good and you have to accept the bad. Like, Hey man, things might go horribly. You might get cracked one minute in and have to on wobbly knees, like fight to a takedown and fight out of positions and be getting your ass beat. After you, you, you get, the win, you're, you go back home to Canada, you're planning to go back to Alpha Male. What were those next steps after the win? What's going through your mind? Um, I just wanted to spend some time with my family. I wanted to uh, come back home. I had a flight back to SAC booked. And I was like, you know what? Look it up. Found a decently cheap flight back to Canada the next day. I was like, all right, screw it. I'm flying back home. Like, I want to see my, you know, I saw my dad. 
I saw my sister and that was obviously like, as you'd see on Instagram, it was pretty emotional after the fight, but I have, uh, you know, my other sister's home. So I wanted to hang out with her. I wanted to see my mom. So I was like, you know what, whatever, just, just jump back here and, uh, you know, have a bunch of friends and training partners out here. So I've been kind of doing the, you know, the gym tour and going to all the different gyms and getting some great training in since the fight, but also just like hanging out with my buddies and, you know, I love coming back home because it's always like brainstorming sessions where it's like, Hey, what have you been working on? And I'm like, well, I've been doing this. And they're like, Oh, I do something like that. Let me show you this. And we like, it's just like a solid, almost mini seminar brainstorming session at every gym I go to. So, uh, and well, what's your, fun. what's your main focus then, in, uh, in that martial arts side when you're visiting those gyms? Like initially you came from a striking background and then you transitioned into BJJ. Now, when you're in the gym, what do you spend more time focusing on? Um, I try to keep it, I try to keep it almost purely 50, 50. So for simplicity's sake, I try to do something like my grappling in the morning and striking at night. Grappling might be wrestling. It might be jujitsu striking, might be boxing. It might be clinch. It might be Muay Thai. And there's like a good amount of crossover between them. So the like most, (laughs) we started saying this sarcastically, but it's the best way to actually put it. We talk about uh, at alpha male and like in the morning we punch wrestle and in the afternoon we wrestle punch. So like, you know, you, you, you strike a guy, you kick him, you knee him, you defend a takedown, you take him down in the morning and then just get right back to your feet and do it again. And then in the afternoon, I jab a guy, I shoot him for a takedown. I start ground and pounding. I break him to a hip. I start putting hooks in. I punch him again. Like it's a little, you know, it's, there's a lot of crossover as far as like the wrestling's concerned, because one, we're a very grappling and wrestling based team too it's mma like that's the that's the big missing factor like 10 8 10 years ago mma training used to be you go to your boxing gym for your boxing you go to your muay thai gym for your muay thai jiu-jitsu for jiu-jitsu wrestling for wrestling and it's like dude if i can hang with black belts in jiu-jitsu if i can hang with collegiate elite level wrestlers and boxers then i'll be fine in an mma fight it's like when you put those all together that's like 80 percent of mma like there isn't, yeah. there's a lot of in-betweens that don't exist in any other sport, like cage wrestling, like getting, you know, like ground and pound, like, um, you know, there's just a lot of the, the, the changing the game is the big thing. Like that's something alpha males big on, you know, favor made a good career. That is like looking for a takedown, breaking dirty and catching a guy with a hook and then reshooting. And then when the guy sh- shoots back in on him, guillotining him, it's like, you want to wrestle, we're going to do jujitsu. You want to do jujitsu, we're going to strike. Like, constantly change the game on this guy right yeah and 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 that's probably important as well especially like if back in the day if you were jumping around from the jujitsu gym to the boxing gym it's more important to be in the mma gym but specifically so you're in the right place and setting in terms of the cage's size because let's say in jujitsu uh you're not dealing with the same dimension so you might you know um lose your, your perception of where you're located at a sp- certain point in time during your sparring sessions. Is that correct? That's completely true. Yeah, that's completely true. But then there are also little weird things like, um, you go to a jiu-jitsu gym, you're rolling and you start getting near the wall. Guy normally says like guy on top's normally like, all right, pause. Let's like circle our heads back in. Like that's where 60% of the grappling takes place in a fight. So if every time you get close to the cage, you circle back in so you can do like pure jujitsu, like, no, I just want to do jujitsu. It's like, all right, well, 
armbar me while your face is glued against the cage, you know, and yeah. I'm elbowing you in the face. Like you're not going to armbar me from close guard like that. It's especially if you haven't been training that. Right. Yeah. It's a whole other dynamic that you're only going to get from the MMA gyms as well. And, and that's, what's also going all over on what's going on here in Phuket, Thailand. It's, we have these MMA gyms. We also have Muay Thai gyms and jujitsu gyms, but most of the people are coming to tiger and AKA and there must be something behind it because a lot of the champions have been coming out of here as well, such as, uh, Petra Young, Volkanovsev, Shevchenko, which, which means something. Now I would have to point my finger on the fact that it's not just the fact that everything's located at your MMA gyms, but it's your entire environment um, in a single location, all within two, a two kilometer radius, meaning your gym's there, the beach is five minutes away, the grocery store's two minutes away, your laundry's two minutes away, and your restaurants are two minutes away. Do you have that same experience at Alpha Male in Sacramento? Meaning like, yes, you're getting that from your MMA gym, but outside of that, your, your lifestyle, is everything very close knitted as well? Yeah. So that's one of the most attractive things about Team Alpha Male is everything's in one building. We have a boxing, jiu-jitsu, you, everything you need, strength conditioning, it's all in one building. Right down the street is our cryotherapy, like physical therapy type place. We have chiropractors that come to our gym. You know, there's a grocery store down the street. I, you know, I live, I live 12 minutes from the gym. You know, I live pretty close to the gym. So it's right by the highway, pop on the highway, the gym's right off the highway, pop off. Like it's, it's real quick. So <laughs> with, with, I often will have like new people in town ask me about SAC. They're like, oh, is this club cool? Like, what about this bar? What about these things? I'm like, dude, I do like three things and they're all, it's like, I go to this same grocery store every single time. I go to the same gym every single, like every day. And then I just chill, like, I, I just chill outside of it. That's, that's about it. The only thing that, uh, I really go to that isn't at team alpha male is like, uh, go out to CSA sometimes, which is a very high level Muay Thai kickboxing gym. And unfortunately I, I didn't make it out this training camp. I kept planning on it. And then like little things came up and it was like, I was already, you know, five weeks out. I'm like, I'm not going to go twice or three times before the fight. Like it's something I want to do consistently. So I plan on going out there more. It's about and an who, hour and 20 minutes from our gym. Who so. are the, uh, the trainers there? Are, are you getting Thai, Thai trainers as well? Yeah, they have some Thai trainers. And then uh, Kieran Fitzgibbons runs it. He's a high level Muay Thai coach. So uh, Muay Thai coach, striking coach. So, um, you know, they're very striking oriented. A lot of their high level strikers come to our gym. Like, um, you know, uh, Jesse Jess in the UFC fights out of there. She comes to team alpha male a lot. Uh, Gaston Bolanos, who's like made spinning elbows famous. He's, uh, he fights out of there and he comes to do our practices as well as train with, uh, Danny Castillo, a wrestling coach that do privates with him. Yep. They have a bunch of guys. Um, Ian is a, you know, a beast of a Muay Thai fighter. They have a ton of killers coming out of there. Obviously I'm assuming you've never been out. Have you been out to Southeast Asia or Phuket and, and, or have been in Thailand at a, a real Muay Thai gym before? Uh, no, I've, 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 uh, well, I've been to Singapore. I've been to like evolve, yeah. uh, Muay Thai in Singapore, but I've never been to Thailand. So I feel like that, you know, that's a little more, that's another level. Uh, maybe, well, let's say authentic. And anyways, the reason for my question was when you're at these Muay Thai gyms, 
do they have the like traditional Muay Thai vibes? Meaning when you're training with those fighters, are they, are they giving you the Thai noises? Like, Oi, Oi, any of this, or is it just more relaxed? One of, one of, one of my main gyms in Ontario, like my the gym, I, the first like MMA fight gym I went to was uh, iron tiger Muay Thai. It's now, it's now a house of champions MMA. Alan Halmajin runs this, this gym. He's a world-class Muay Thai trainer. He's like one of the cut men for the UFC. This guy's like done everything. He ran K1 for years. Like the guy knows striking in and out. And that's, it's a little more, um, I'd say European style Muay Thai, like European K1 style influenced than straight Thai. Like it's not the like, like you know, Dutch kickboxing. It's like, yeah, it's like he's, yeah. he comes from that Romanian Eastern European background. Uh, of, of striking and influence so it's a little more that style but yeah you rip pads it's you know you're singing for 20 seconds at the yeah. end of the of each <laughs> strike right aye, aye. Yeah. it's like first time i went in there when i was like 17 i thought it was cool so i started like it's my first day i'm like screaming i'm singing in there yeah yeah you know like these like <laughs> loud high noises right well that that's what it's like over here the the only difference is uh most of the trainers the tide trainers they don't speak a lick of English. How is it on your side? The Thai trainers, they can speak pretty good English? <laughs> so we had at Alpha Male, we had Master Tong for a long time. I trained with him for a couple of years, but he was at Alpha Male for like 12 years or he was in the US for 12 years. And uh, he's a good trainer. The guy, the guy knew his stuff. I liked training with him. But, and look, I can't really speak any other languages at all. So I, I'm, I'm not one to say, but like, <laughs> we joke about it all the time that he's like he learned enough english to like communicate and he's like i'm good you know that's yeah. that's he's like hey you punch he can he can me no knockout like saying like you gotta hit guys hard because nobody's ever knocked me out you know like just things like that where it's like barely it's it's barely english but you get the point right like you you, you train with them long enough you're like oh i know exactly what the guy's talking about yeah it's over here kind of the the better English speaking trainers, it's pretty much on the pad work. So, uh, I mean, I, when I first, I did Muay Thai for about three or four mm -hmm. years. I, I mean, I probably have at least two, 300 hours under my, my belt on that, but yeah, it's, they, they can call, they can call the combos. They can do the pad work. But after that, unless you kind of go to lunch, you can, you know, they can get around the food in English, but anything outside of that world. No. It's just if you ask them for directions to the grocery store, you're no, no, no. better off figuring it out on your own. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's <laughs> how it is over here. Um, let, let's bring yeah. the connection of, uh, your journey to the UFC and, uh, we'll try not to give the, the long, long story, but let's do the gym journey connection from Nova Scotia to alpha male and how that came about. So, Went out to Dalhousie in Halifax, uh, to Dalhousie University, and uh, trained at Titans MMA out there. That was an awesome gym for the time. I, I still love those guys. Like I still talk to a bunch of those guys on a daily, weekly basis. Um, and like, is but, Gavin you know, Gavin Tucker still there? The point where, yeah, yeah. So Gavin yeah. Tucker's still there. He'll do camps elsewhere sometimes, but he still yeah. trains over there primarily. And he's an absolute beast. He's you know one of the best guys out of Canada right now for sure. Um, but for me, it got to, it got to a tough point. Like I had Gavin Tucker and Pat Carroll were my two main training partners there and they're both beasts. They're awesome. But 
for like a year. It, it got to the point where they got injured. Gavin had shoulder surgery, so he was going to be out for over a year. And Pat had knee surgery, so he was going to be out for over a year. So it was like training for a World Series of Fighting fight. I was fighting Hakeem Dawadu, who's like an international Muay Thai champion. He's now a UFC fighter. I had a super tough fight coming up. And I was training with like, you know, like 40-year-old rec members. You know, we, we did a reality show there at the gym for a little bit, Cubicle to the Cage. And like, there were some great guys on there to, to you know, it was an awesome experience, but like, they're not elite level guys. Like those aren't the guys that are getting you ready for a world series fight against a Muay Thai champion. You know, that's like, I just didn't have guys to work with. And, uh, you know, there were some other, other issues and stuff, but I was like, all right, I need to find somewhere else to train. I went to PEI for a couple of weeks to train with Jason Sago or for like a week. And then I went back to Ontario. It was a really weird camp where I was like ping ponging around trying to like find training. There was no structure. Um, a couple guys that are now like my super close friends, Adam Asenza, um, Paul Jalbert and Elias Theodoro all like welcomed me into their group in Ontario. I'd never met them before, but, um, I'd kind of messaged them and like they, they'd in passing, uh, Lachlan, their coach in, in passing had been like, yeah, if you ever want to train with us, you know, let me know. And I was like, Hey, I know you like probably said that out of just like to be kind, but I'm going to take you up on that. I need you to help me get ready for this fight yeah. like last minute. So it was a weird camp. I ended up losing that fight. Uh, no excuses. He's a beast. You know, he, he was definitely yeah, for sure. better than me that night. Um, I've filled out since then, moved up to weight classes. So, you know, definitely found what I, I need to do a little more. But so, so this is from your, your Titans MMA. Your, this is from your originally at Titans MMA. Um, and I think if a lot of people don't know, I think people know who Hakeem is by now. For some reason, the UFC, they don't, he's in the featherweight division. I don't know why the UFC, I don't, I feel they don't like him. They don't really push him, especially like in terms of media coverage. I believe his last fight, he lost in a decision, but he had like a four or five fight win streak going on, but most of them were going to decisions and a bit boring. Um, yeah. But anyways, I, well, let's not, I won't go into that too much, but your transition from Titans to Alpha, did that go directly from Titans to Alpha or were, were you kind of going through Niagara as well? And how did that all connect? So Niagara top team wasn't a team yet at the time. Um, there were some other teams in Ontario. I was kind of training in Ontario for a bit, just saving up some money and stuff so I could afford to move somewhere else. But the connection came from Josh Hill, who's a super high level MMA fighter. He's a Bellator fighter uh, out of Ontario. And he had been down to alpha male a couple of times. And I was like, uh, I got his information from him. I was drawn to alpha male because it seems like the most tight knit team in, in MMA. You know, there were, there were lots of other high level gyms. I'd considered TriStar, considered Rufo sport, considered this and that, but I was like, you know what? These guys seem like not only is it a gym where you go to train, it seems like these guys are actually boys. It seems like they're all good friends. Like they're there for one another. That's what I want. Like Titans was very much like that. It was a very tight knit team. And I loved that. Like it, it I obviously would put the work in regardless, but I wanted to feel that like brotherhood. I wanted to feel that like college wrestling team vibe and alpha male had it and still has it today. So um, yeah. I moved down there to train. <clears throat> the other thing that drew me down was, you know, between two of the, two of the three main gyms I was considering, I'm like, I could go to Rufo sport 
as a striker with decent jiu-jitsu and I'm sure they'd love me. They'd be like, perfect. You're our style. You're doing everything right. Just keep doing that. And I'd get, you know, pat on the back. I'm like, or I could go to alpha male and probably get my ass kicked for the first six months to a year, just get wrestled by everybody and be really uncomfortable. And it probably will suck and it'll probably shatter my ego. But I think in the long term, it's like the medicine that I need. I need to get better at wrestling because I didn't have a strong wrestling game at the time. And I was like, I don't want, I don't want to be the guy that gets into an MMA fight and just has some wrestler bury his head in my chest and beat me by decision and like expose me in that way. So I thought alpha male might be a better, better fit for me. And, uh, yeah, and, and this happens to, to a, a lot of, uh, um, high level strikers that do not have grappling. And like, for example, like, uh, Jermaine Durandamir, the the Dutch kickboxer, when she fought Amanda Nunes, like she is a world class kickboxer, Muay Thai Muay Thai fighter. She was destroying Amanda, and then Amanda's just like, "Well, I guess I'm just going to wrestle fuck you for the rest of this fight," and that was it. But if she had yeah. any degree of of takedown defense or the ability to get out of those positions, I think she wins that fight. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough stylistic matchup. If, if Nunez couldn't get her to the ground, she was giving her problems on the feet, you know. But it, it it takes a certain level of humility. Like, it's way more comfortable to go and do what you're already good at, right? Like, I'm sure the first year at Rufo Sport would have been a lot easier than the first year at Alpha Male for me, you know. I went down to Alpha Male, and I had been used to, at every gym I went to in Canada, I got attention right away. Either guys knew who I was from, like, local circuits or they saw me strike or grapple and they're like hey we'll give you some attention like i was like right in with most guys right off the bat and then i went to alpha male and it was just like yeah you're you know i see it actually all the time at alpha male where it's just like guy everybody's the best at their gym or everybody was like a big fish in their little pond and then they come to alpha male and it's like you know yeah. you're average here you know you're well it's you're like you're average. going to the you're going to the average. show you're going to the show you're going to the big leagues yeah. Um, how did they embrace you at Alpha Male when you uh, initially um, arrived? And I understand your your motivation was to work on your wrestling. Did you have a journey in mind at that point as well? So it's kind of a two-part question there. Um, what were your plans from Alpha Male in terms of your journey to the UFC? Was that mapped out and how did they embrace you? Uh, the journey wasn't mapped out. You know, at the time I was still planning on fighting at 145 pounds, which looking back is insane. Yeah. You know, I'm, fight, I'm fighting at 170 now and I'm, I'm not a tiny welterweight by any means. Um, <clears throat> but I also never touched weights ever. I was just trying to stay long and lean. But once you start adding like a lot of wrestling in, you're going to start bulking up. So I had to move up at least one weight class. Um, how was I embraced when I went to Alpha Male? Um, I remember kind of standing out on my third day, Wednesday is sparring day. And on that particular day, <clears throat> there were some like high level guys that were sparring, but then like the, there were a few of the highest level guys that were sitting cage side or uh, ringside. So there was like TJ Dillashaw, Benavidez, um, Chad Mendez. And I think Faber was also on the side. Like there were three or four of those guys. Like I did, you know, we did, five rounds and they're like anyone that wants a sixth round can can jump in now so i jumped in and did my my sixth and you know in my head going down there i'm like look if i get wrestled by guys it's gonna happen i'll work on my wrestling if somebody you know if, if it, on the ground it's rough that's fine but i'm like i am not going to let anyone even hang with me on the feet like nobody's 
nobody's getting out of a round without thinking, holy shit, that guy's an unreal kickboxer. So I just wanted to come in and, and we sparred harder than at the time. Like we had 16 ounce gloves on, but I was trying to fucking put it on these guys. Right. So I came out banging and, and, and uh, I went with a, a Taekwondo guy who's now like a good friend of mine. I didn't know he was like on the Taekwondo world team for Great Britain and, and South Africa. Like he's a world-class Taekwondo striker and, and who's, who's that? So I was like chopping the fuck out of his legs. Um, Adam Corrigan. Okay. He ended up cornering me in my Bellator fight. And I was like, I can't let this Taekwondo, like I was like, almost like didn't respect Taekwondo. I'm like, I can't let this Taekwondo guy outstrike me in front of these guys. So I'm like chopping his leg as hard as I can. And, you know, going with these guys. And then I did like the sixth bonus round where it was like, only a few other people were doing it. And I, I, I had a really good showing against a guy that became a friend of mine. And, uh, and so as soon as the round was over, like a bunch of the guys came over and they're like, welcome to the team, man. Like, yeah. good to have you. What's your name? Where are you from? Like, how long are you here? I'm like, oh no, I moved here. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. You know? So that was like kind of my first initial, like, all right, you can, you know, you're cool. Like you're not a, you're not a bitch basically. What is it seems that alpha male, it's a brotherhood. And I think that's what we see from the outside, from the media. Um, was it initially easy besides this, this specific point in time to join that brotherhood? Um, cause I'm assuming there's still probably a close circle in there of the, the top guys, like your Chad Mendez, Uriah, obviously the owner, um, uh, Cody, this seems like it, that would be a much smaller circle. How long did it take you to enter that circle? Because if people are not familiar, you have been cornering Cody on most of his fights, and you will be cornering him on his upcoming fight in December. To get in like the inner circle, yeah, I couldn't tell you what the act when the actual time was that I was in the inner circle. It definitely helped once I started coaching Cody. You know, you tend to be closest with the guys that you train with. So Cody was a, a smaller 35er and I was a 55er for most of my time there now welterweight. So we didn't train together a lot. He and I, when I first moved down there, I was a lot skinnier again at 45. So we were closer in weight. Um, he and I had like one day in particular, it was like a super weird day. I got a call from my mom that my grandfather died that morning. And I was like, okay, I'm going to fly home tonight or tomorrow for like the funeral. And then I just went and it was boxing sparring and he was like, Hey, do you want to get around? And I was like, yeah. So we just went at it for the first round. And then he like looks around the rest of the room. He's like, he looked, like grab a new partner. He looks around the room. He's like, all right, we're the two best boxers in here. Let's just do six rounds and call it a day. I was like, okay, cool. So we just kind of whooped each other's asses. And like, he was good. I could tell the kid could box his, his footwork was amazing. His like ability to evade jabs and like not allow me to establish distance was, was very impressive, but he was one to know in the UFC. He wasn't like, Cody Garbrandt, you know, yeah. yeah, it was just like, okay, some guy with tattoos is trying to jab me. Like, I'm not letting this guy outbox me in front of the boxing coach here. Like, I'm going to beat this dude's ass. So we were like going at it. Right. So afterwards he's like, you know, it's like a lot of both of us, like a lot of respect after that. Um, plus for me, it was just like, get some emotion out, like, you know, tough news right before that. So like not the worst time to get punched in the face and punch somebody else in the face. Right. Um, but yeah, once I started cornering Cody, I definitely, you know, felt more like I was, in the inner circle kind of once I started coaching as well, like a lot of the higher level guys came to me to, to help them for fights, Elkins, uh, Truto Ishihara, um, Cody were like my first three guys I cornered in the UFC and then Feely, uh, Feely and I ended up becoming like a lot closer. Like he's one of my you know closest friends now. Um, 
but yeah, there's, there's still like definitely that brotherhood, that tight core group here, but I think it is like a very welcoming environment. I like to think anyway, as long as you're not like a douche, I think our, our gym yeah. is really good at filtering out douchebags. Like we don't have really anybody on the team that I don't like. You and know, that would just be more people like coming guy. in with egos trying to be bigger than the gym. I think so. Yeah. Or guys like, yeah, it, 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 that, that toxic kind of training partner has been filtered out. You know, there were some guys in the past that were, you know, like that. And sometimes even at like the highest level, like, you know, I mean, some of the other alpha male guys have mentioned that about Dillashaw in the past, you know, we, I never had, honestly, like I never had a, a personal problem with Dillashaw. He was always, yep. always nice to me. He and I sparred a couple of times and he was always pretty cool to me. Um, yeah. I think like that story is I quite big in the media a couple of years ago and um, everyone's kind of, you know, thrown their shots at Dillashaw um, from uh, a fan on the outside perspective. I think what we viewed it as is more as he kind of went behind the gym's back by him, you know, leaving uh, the gym. And, and, and that's where like the brotherhood at, at alpha male came in and said, you can't just be hopping around gym to gym when something goes wrong. Um, and we won't get into that, but I want to jump back to dig a bit deeper onto the point you just made about toxic training partners without saying names or, or, or anything like that. What do you mean by toxic training partners specifically? I'd say guys that you don't trust, like guys that you know are trying to hurt you in the room. There's there's one thing like, is our room intense? Like, of course, it's one of the best MMA gyms in the world. Like, we're going hard. But the guys that I can go really hard with, I know they have my best intentions. Like, they're, they're not trying to hurt me. If they get an opening, they're not like, you know, if I'm off balance, they're not going to kick me in the head while I'm like getting up, they're not going to do shit like that. Like I have guys that I trust. I know, you know, if, if I just know they're not trying to hurt me. There are a lot of guys yeah. that I can say aren't like that. There are a lot of places that I can say that aren't like that, where guys are genuinely trying to hurt one another just to build their own confidence. You know, um, what happens to those guys I mean, when they get I, called I out in the gym? Not, are, are they kicked out? That? It, what ha would happen to those toxic guys that are trying to injure you? Does the team come together? Do they get kicked out of the gym? So, I mean, obviously, like, if it's, you know, coaches will will jump in if it's bad enough and and call a pause to it but, or call a stop to it. But a lot of it is, like, nobody likes to stay somewhere where they're clearly not welcome or not fitting in. Like, one, if you're constantly doing that, then the best guys in the gym will jump on you and beat the shit out of you. Like all right, you want to do that to like our, our smaller guys or whatever? Well, I'm like a big dude in the gym. Like I'm going to beat your ass or like one of our other, you know, one of our other top guys will come in and kick you in the head. Like you want to pick on our dudes? <laughs> we'll fucking pick on you, buddy. Like if you really want to go there, we'll go there. Um, but then there's also like the social aspect of it. Like if you're, if guys clearly don't like you, like, you know, a little bit of the, like, don't come talk to us, man. Like we're cool over here. You go do your own thing. Like eventually guys get, like they catch the vibe and they, they bail out or they can't hang cause they're getting their asses beat. Like, or, or sometimes that happens and guys like learn, they're like, Oh, okay. I'm the problem here. Like I can assume that's the ego coming into play. And especially with the competitive nature of MS MMA and uh, the lack of 
promotions that you can jump around to besides maybe UFC, Bellator, and one. Um, there is that competitive nature to try to, you know, prove yourself. Uh, let, let's jump ahead and make a transition into your division and the welterweight division. What are your thoughts on the current status of this division? Because I, as a uh, an upcoming UFC fighter, you're very you you you're well spoken. You articulate yourself very well. You're very well calculated. So I, I can I can see you doing well in these competitive divisions to be able to get into, let's say, a top five. What what do you think of this division? Where do you see yourself going in it? And uh, what do you see maybe in the future of that division in terms of champions, future fighters? And just talk a little bit about that. I think it's a pretty deep division right now. Um, Usman's done a great job of kind of clearing out a lot of the top 10 kind of similar to how GSP did it back in the day. But even with him having beaten a lot of the top guys, it's still a, an insanely deep division. Like uh, Chimaev is very interesting. He's only a few fights in, but, you know, clearly has a lot of hype around him and, and rightfully so. He's made big waves right off the bat. Um, Sean Brady's undefeated. He looks good. There's a lot of guys that are coming up that like, you're like, okay, I want to watch that guy. I, I, I want to see how this guy this guy goes. Um, but I also see myself fitting it, you know, fitting in well in that weight class. I don't see too many guys where I'm like, you know, I, I, I everyone, I, everyone I, I watch, I'm like, you know what, there's, there's ways to win this fight for sure. Um, you know, I don't have a, a massive hit list or hit list or anything like that yeah. uh, yet, but uh, I do have a few, a few guys I, I have in mind and, you know, we'll talk to management and talk to coaches and stuff and see what we think the best plan is for the first few fights like i don't plan on trying to to take the short route like when i i took a break from fighting for a few years and like before that i had i kind of i could feel myself not wanting to do it and i was like in denial i'm like no i'm gonna win a local fight i'll get a short notice fight in the ufc and then i'll get a call like for a short notice fight against like a top level guy and that'll put me in the top 10 and i'll like leapfrog all these people it's like look, man, don't try and rush the process. Like, take your time. Your first four fights are like entry-level contract, right? You're, 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 not, you're not making the most amount of money right off the bat as, you know, nobody, you know, I'm, I'm not a big draw, so obviously I'm not going to be making the, the, high, the high money right off the bat, but it's like beat up some guys that have similar amount of fights as you. You know, first, you know, it's, it's your debut, beat up a, a debut or a guy that's got a couple fights, then your second, third fight, you know, first, second fight, like beat up guys that are around that same, you know, first few fights level. Don't try to just like jump in there and be like, all right, I'm going to fight, you know, I'm going to fight Colby Covington for yeah. in my, in my second fight for, you know, it's like one, it's not going to happen. Like you, you see like these guys come into the UFC and they're like, I could beat this champion right off the bat. It's like, Bro, you're four years away from getting there. Like, come on, man. I don't know. I feel yeah, like so you're a, more focused on you're gonna bit. you're gonna stay in your lane, st stay in your lane, and uh, follow this gradual process to to getting into your top fifteens and top tens. Yeah, not because I don't think I have the skills there. Like, I I'm very confident in the cage, and I felt really comfortable in there because I know I'm like, I genuinely believe I'm one of the best guys in the world. Like I'm a very high level black belt in jujitsu. I'm one of the head striking coaches at team alpha male. 
and like in a room full of collegiate wrestlers and high level wrestlers, like I'm one of the better wrestlers in there. So like my MMA IQ is high. I've been coaching for years. That's why Uriah Faber had me coach him. That's why Cody Garbrandt has me coach him. That's why Andre Feely, all these other high level guys have had me coach. I'm like, I know I have that like well-rounded game and I'm like an athlete. Like my brother plays in the NHL. I'm, I'm a fighter. Like I come from an athletic family. I, I work hard at it. Like I have in my mind, the three things that make up a fighter are, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's the classic, like mind, body, spirit. It's the fighter, the athlete and the martial artist. And I feel like I am strong in all three of those areas. And within each of those different aspects, I'm strong in like in the martial arts, I'm strong in striking, grappling and wrestling. Right. So I, I feel like within those, I have, I have high level strengths. Like I'm going to stay in my lane and fight, 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 you know, fight my, my first fight against whoever I get, you know, it might be a debuter. It might be another contender series guy. It might be a guy who's, you know, one and oh, two and oh, one and one in the UFC, whatever. Um, but I think taking the long route to the UFC, which I would, can, I would say I did I'm 29. I thought I'd be in the UFC by like 24, but I spent a lot of time developing skill. So I don't feel like I'm thrown in too early. A good example would be like, unfortunately for the guy I just fought like him, he's seven and oh, he's 21. This kid might be a killer in five years. Like he could be a champion one day, who knows, but he's 21. He just turned 21 and he's fighting like a black belt in jujitsu. One of the head striking coaches and head MMA coaches at one of the biggest gyms in the world. Like, talk about fighting up hit yeah and it's, battles, it's right? even though you don't have let's say 20 fights under your belt the training experience you have in the gym is um priceless i mean no one no the people yeah. the the level the level of people that you're sparring with training with i mean that experience alone uh can surpass someone else that maybe has 20 fights coming out of a let's say a, a less well-known gym or a smaller gym i mean so for an example, last Tuesday, when I fought uh, at the apex, I'm pretty sure for everybody else that fought on that night, that was their first time at fights at the apex. I would imagine. So anyway, for me, that was my like 12th time or something like that. I've been in the same locker room we were in. I've used the same restroom that I had to use multiple times. I know the commission in Nevada. I know all the people that I was working with. I know the UFC staff, excuse me. I know the hotel we stayed at. I know the shuttle drivers. I've heard like, I've heard the shuttle drivers tell the same stories. Like I know this game. So when it came to fight day, it was like, when it came to fight week, I've already felt fight week, like 12 times in that hotel, going to that same venue, like it wasn't new for me. It felt like I did 12 dry runs or 12 dress rehearsals. And it was like, all right, now's the time to actually run this. So by the time we were heading to the venue, I'm like, you know, I was obviously nervous. It's a fist fight in a cage for something you care about. Like you're gonna, if you care about it, you're going to be nervous and there's physical consequences for negative outcomes. Okay. So we're, we're chatting about your, your thoughts on the welterweight division and also your experience. Um, not only fighting in the UFC at the Apex Center, but also being a corner. What are the major differences from your perspective of being a fighter at the Apex at the Apex Center and being a cornerman? So you cut out there for a second. What are what are the major differences you feel are between being a cornerman and a fighter at the Apex Center 
at the Apex Center in terms of the emotions you're going through. Um, talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, you're, you're definitely nervous for both. I feel like, you know, people say like, oh, I get more nervous when I watch my friends fight or when I'm cornering. I don't, I definitely don't get more nervous. It's just a very different type of nerves. One is like, one is obviously like, I want to perform well. And the other one is I want my friend or my fighter to perform well, but the other one, you know, one, I have a lot less control of, right. When I'm going in there, I almost feel a little more, the last few fights I've had, I feel more relaxed as we're getting closer to the fight. Like fight days, obviously nerve wracking, but once I start warming up, I feel like more relaxed once I'm the one that's able to get in there and do things, you know, it's like, all right, we don't have to worry about how much food did I eat today or how much, how long was the warm up? whatever. It's like, all right, now it's the time to go. Whereas when you're coaching, it's like, I'm not the one in there doing the thing. So it's, it's, it's like, you have to like, you're letting go a little more. Um, as far as coaching and fighting in the apex, I like coaching and fighting in the apex. There, there are some similarities in that it's a small building. You can hear your coaches pretty well. It's not overwhelming as far as like a stadium goes. Um, so that's nice. Um, do you have like, uh, your most, I'm sorry, sorry. Um, I was gonna, based on that, on the cornering and the coaching side, do you have like your most memorable specific moment cornering where like you felt you added a lot of value to the fighter during that specific time? Um, I've been proud of a few, you know, look back on, on, um, when the camera's like between, uh, but between, uh, between rounds, the camera's on like me cornering guys, there was one, uh, round <clears throat> with Faber and another one with, with Cody where that felt good. And I, I, you know, you, you're just saying what you think at the time. I'm not really planning on how it sounds to other people, but like get a few people that, you know, send you messages and they're like, man, you, you did well in the corner. And then I go back and I'm like, you know what, that I'm happy with that advice. That was good advice. Like, obviously I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to give good advice while I'm in there, but it's nice to hear it from like a third person's perspective going well. Um, do, do you recall, do you recall something coaching? you said specifically mm -hmm. during that time? Like, or is it, everything's just happening too fast that you can't, it's more like uh, muscle memory. It's, uh, it, it is really more like muscle memory. Like oftentimes I won't remember exactly what I said while we were in there. It's just, you see something in the moment and you, you know, you, you, uh, you try to take advantage of it. Um, maybe some cool coaching moments. One of the, my favorite ones was, um, coaching Ricardo Ramos in, uh, in Sao Paulo when he fought, like he choked a guy unconscious in an outdoor arena. <clears throat> And uh, not unconscious, sorry, he choked a guy in the first round. He got the rear naked choke, like like a flawless victory. That one felt great. I was so proud of the kid. Like, he's a great guy, worked super hard. You know, we, we traveled across the world for that one. He got the win, got the stoppage. Like, that one felt pretty good. Um, Uriah's knockout of uh, Ricky Simone in Sacramento felt pretty amazing. Like Yeah, that was insane. Not, you know, from a, from a coaching perspective, it was cool. But just even, like, being in the arena with him, you know, it's, it was, it wasn't the main event, but it was like the unofficial main event it was co-main. So we had like the extra long walkout. So they walk us back through like the tunnel. So like the back of the stadium. Right. And so we're like waiting, he's kind of like pacing and he didn't do like a warm up at all. We hit mitts for maybe 30 seconds. And then he just kind of bounced around in the back. Like he, I was like, dude, you really don't want more. He's like, no, I'm good. I feel good. 
It's like, okay, whatever feels good, man. And uh, we're waiting in the back to get called, like we're, we're about to walk out. And then you just hear like, come on from like the, the Dr. Dre Blackstreet, uh, yeah. California. And you just feel the building start vibrating from the amount of people screaming. And I'm like, dude, this is fucking cool, man. Like that's <laughs> one of the coolest things I've ever felt in my life. So, you know, we start walking out and then when you get to actually being in the venue, like in the room where the fight is, like you can't even hear the speakers playing the song. You hear everyone singing. Uh, you know, you hear everyone singing the song in the audience, like just screaming. It was, it was insane. I've never felt, that was like one of the most energy filled rooms I've ever felt. Are you ready for that? If this went back home to let's say the ACC or the Sky Dome for those crowds to come out, because that's something you've never felt as the fighter before. Are you, are you prepared for that? Is that something that excites you? Oh yeah, I'm definitely prepared for it. You know, it's nice having had um, some fights on bigger stages in these smaller rooms where it's like, like these apex fights are almost like gradual steps to these like massive stadiums. You know, I've fought in big stadiums before I fought on the uh, Bellator dynamite card. So that was a yep. big stadium, the SAP center in San Jose. It wasn't packed when I fought, but there were still thousands of people in there. So it was still plenty loud. There were still plenty of eyes on me. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'm definitely ready when, when those big stadium days come, dude, I would love to fight at like the, I think it's called like the first place now, but cops Coliseum, like the, oh, and, uh, fights in Hamilton, Hamilton. Like, fight. Yeah, or the, yeah, I man, cops would yeah, be yeah. sweet, have a fight the old, I don't know if it's, it's Scotia bank center, I think now, but you know, the, uh, old ACC. In, oh, the old ACC. Um, yeah. That could be in the cards. Uh, you sound quite confident in your skills in your skill set, and some UFC fighters are not as confident. For example, Kevin Holland openly says, "I don't want to be a champion. I want to get paid. I'll take any fight." Um, but he has no intention of being a champion, and he's openly said that. Do you see yourself being a champion one day? Of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was especially when I was younger a much bigger source of motivation for training. When I was a kid, I'm like, I'm going to be a champion. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I've reverted back to much more short-term goals now. Like um, I've heard Canelo talk about this. And then I heard uh, Tyson Fury talk about this earlier today or yesterday where he's like, look, I'm happy today and I'm going to wake up and be happy tomorrow. And that's what I think about. Like, that's what I try to think about. Obviously like this next fight is in mind or like, my debut is in mind, but for the most part, all I'm thinking about is like, I want to train today. Like I'm going to train the best I can. I'm going to go in tomorrow and train the best I can. I'm going to win this next fight. Of course there are like, I'm like, man, when I get that belt, that's going to be sweet. That's definitely in there. But Canelo talks about it. He's like, I never had aspirations of being like a champion. I never thought I was going to be this guy. Like I just thought about the fight in front of me. And I kept winning them until I got to a world title. And it's like, and now I'm one of the you know best champions of my era. And that's kind of how I've been thinking about it a lot more. You know, there's almost like a little bit of pressure, like say this last fight, for example, I'm like, man, I'm going to be a world champion. I'm going to do this and that. And then, you know, you start having troubles in a fight. I'm like, man, if I'm, if I'm struggling with this guy, what am I going to do in that fight? Or if I can't even beat this guy, how am I going to be a world champion? It's like, it's completely different. You know? You might have yeah. a war with a guy that's that's good and destroy a guy that's amazing. You know, you, you never know what might happen, right? 
So, so like your, your mentality again is focusing on uh, the next fight in front of you as that will come up. Um, you get a lot of like guys like Colby Covington, Chael Sonnen, where they create these personas. And especially as the viewer and the fan, uh, it seems that this WWF, and I refuse to say WWE because that's how I remember it, um, this WWF characters are becoming more important in the UFC to get more eyes on you, get more clickbait, you know, be able to sell more tickets. Do you see yourself going down that road and, and creating characters and, and, or do you just see yourself staying in your lane? I'm definitely not doing all that shit. Yeah. Like here's the thing, you know, in Colby Covington's defense, man, the guy was on potentially getting cut. So he started doing this shit. And now, you know, he's making a lot of money and he's famous. Great for you. That's, you know, that's, that's awesome. But at the end of the day, you have to like go on living your life. Like you have to be yourself after, like, if you're saying things like that, aren't you, I feel like you're like losing who you are a little bit. And that's not what I want to do. I want to be honest. Like, I don't want to lie. I don't want to say like bullshit. I want to be genuine. I want to be myself. Like, like even in the, the post-fight press conference, like I was, you know, making fun of how guys are always like, dude, I knew I was going to smash that guy. I knew I was going to walk through him. Nobody can hang with me. It's like, bro, if we went back 30 minutes, we can see you shaking in the locker room right now. Like you were terrified before you walked out there. Don't sit here and tell me you were like, bro, nobody can touch me. You were like, oh fuck, like all scared, right? Like, come on, man. Like this shit's scary. We're all scared of this. Like the guys that say they aren't are just full of shit. Like, but it's, that's part of the fun. It's like, that's why, that's why people skydive. That's why people fight. Like, that's why people do intimidating bold shit is to like, see if you can do it. It's like, yeah. And I think uh, you, sh you should be afraid of running with the bulls while you're doing it. You know, you should be, if you're not afraid of that bull, that's when you're going to get hurt. And I think I'm just going to assume that this also comes down to the, the camaraderie and energy, the uh, authenticity the transparency and consistency coming out of alpha male. Because when you look at alpha males, uh, fighters on a whole, there's not a single one of them that, that is a character. Everyone's very true to themselves. Would you agree on that? Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody's pretty much exactly how they are. Um, I think most of us are pretty comfortable under that pressure and comfortable under those cameras because we have cameras in the gym all the time. Right. Like the first time I was in there and they like set up these lights and did like UFC embedded or whatever it was. I was like, Oh shit, like, this is so cool. And now it's like, all right, of course there are cameras in here. Like it doesn't feel like anything added. It doesn't feel like any extra pressure. Like, you know, that interview with Laura Sanko after the fight just felt like a chat, you know, it didn't feel like I was like having to put on this like job interview esque energy or like put on this, like, Hey, I'm this guy. Mm. It's like, all right, man. Like, I'm really glad that choke works, <laughs> you know, just like and, and you, you're actually are. Could you attribute that to the success of your last fight as well? And that, that aspect of going into a, uh, the fight, it's that you're so comfortable, you're so used to this situation that the lights and the, the cameras and the pressure, that, that just was not as, as existent as it was with maybe your opponent. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel like that was any added pressure to be honest. The only thing 
that made me feel a little bit like, oh, that was unexpected or that's new for me was I had never fought on, I've only fought on actual canvas a couple of times. Almost all my fights have been on like cheaper events are usually on like a, kind of a tarp. So it's like, if you put water on a tarp, it gets slippery. If you put water on a canvas, it gets sticky. The, the only thing that was like different that I've never fought on was I've never fought on like a blood soaked canvas before. So I got in there and I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. But I was like, that's different. I'm like, part of me was like, really fucking hope that's not me. You know, like, I hope I'm yeah. not that guy next. Like part of it because of like the shiny lights. And I feel like it's the kind of blue of the canvas as well. Like all the lights are shining on you and then it's dark outside. It kind of felt like I was walking into like some hostile type situation where there were a bunch of like billionaires on the other side of a glass wall that are like, mm, cut his arm off next or something like that. You know, as they like <laughs> drag out the last body that they just massacred. I was like, oh shit, some fucked up stuff's about to go on. And like, I'm part of it. But you know, I, I it, like, that was like a two second thought in my head. And then I just didn't think about it at all. I'm like, you know what? I'm comfortable. I looked out, saw my corner, looked out, saw my sister and my dad. I was like, you know, gave him a wave and I'm like, I'm so ready for this. Yeah, you seem quite focused even um, when that fight began. And I know we've, we've come back to this a few times. He went to go uh, touch hands with you, but you refused. Now, I don't think that was a disrespectful thing. It seemed like you were just so focused on that fight. I have never touched gloves in a fight and I never will. So if that guy wanted to have a beer after the fight, I'd have a beer. Like he and I didn't talk really after I, I shook his hand and I tried to talk to him a little bit. Like I was fully willing to like we're planning on inviting him to alpha male. Like I think he'd be a good training partner. He's not in the UFC right now. So why not? Um, it didn't work out that way, but I've never touched gloves in a fight and I'm never going to, you know, like they say, protect yourself at all times. Like it's go time. As soon as we walk out there, if he does this and like runs at me and I'm like, all right, yeah, let's high five. And he suckers me and knocks me. Yeah. That's on me. Like I'm not letting that happen. And you see it all the time. You see guys pull fake hand touches or you see a guy like, walk out and the other guy like runs and flying knees him because he wasn't ready it's like dude the bell went the ref said the literally the last thing that was said to you was fight and you want to high five a guy no like we're fighting now like the yep. fight already started it's go time like we discussed the rules we know what we got ourselves into go when does your switch turn on into this is fight mode a day before coming through the tunnel or when the bell rings you know there's there's for sure waves right like Obviously, the closer you get to the fight, the more waves there's going to be where it's like, oh, this is happening. Like, we're actually fighting tomorrow. And then fight day, you know, you're, you're, thinking, you're trying to stay turned off, right? I don't want to turn on at, like, noon and then fight at 8. Like, that's the mistake a lot of younger guys make. It's like, man, I'm going to kill this guy. And they get all hyped and get that adrenaline dump throughout the afternoon. It's like, that's the worst part of, of the fight is just waiting for the fight. Like, fight day, just waiting, that's the worst part. Um, so. Uh, when do I turn on? Like when you go into, okay, like this, when, this is about to happen. Yeah. I, I guess it's like when the commission says, Hey, we're ready for you. Like you're walking Then it's like, okay, like the warmups done. I don't need to think about the warmup anymore. The training's been done. The refueling's done. like everything's done. Just go do it. Like even while you're warming up, there was a little bit of like, you know, preparing to walk out. But once the walk starts, it's like, there's no turning back. We're doing this that's when you get turned on. Awesome. And yeah, I, I thought that information is important for people that are, are not fighters or they are upcoming fighters to understand that as well. Okay. We're going to, we're going to wrap this up in a second. What time is it? It's late on your side. It's almost midnight. Um, I just had a, uh, we'll try to make these questions really quick. 
My thought is more on the welterweight division and in terms of certain fighters that don't take fights because they're waiting for certain ranked opponents. So I'll give an example. Like, what are your thoughts on Leon Edwards? And just, you know, he, he, he almost took two years off waiting for a fight. And now officially he is fighting Jorge Masvidal. Do you see yourself being active in, in, you know, you know, as long as you're recovered, ready to go, or are you going to be that fighter that's, I want a top five once I, you know, once I reach top five, I only want top fives. Or do you see yourself being more like a Chimaev, like, give me the fight, let's see if it makes sense and let's go. You know, it's, it's hard to say from his perspective, what I would do, or from my perspective, what I would do if I were him. Um, I think I'm, I'm a guy like, let's just get these fights. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. But once you're in the top five, I, I understand that a lot more. He, hadn't lost in years. Like it doesn't make sense for him to fight some like unranked guy, right? Like he deserved even, you know, he, I think he kind of threw the UFC a bone in the Bilal Muhammad fight. Um, I think if anyone deserved a top five fight or an immediate title shot, it would be him. Right. Yeah. Like he, he, he has put it on a lot of guys in a row. Um, but as far as like outside, I, I, what I don't like is the mentality is like, you hear guys openly say it. Like I think Bilal Muhammad said it, which is, which is funny. It's like, man, these ranked guys wouldn't fight me while I was coming up. So I'm not fighting anybody that isn't ranked ahead of me. It's like, so you're telling me like number 12 isn't fighting anybody below him. Yeah. I only want to fight guys above me. And then number eight is only fighting guys that are above him. I doesn't want to fight. It's like, this is not how things work. You know, you can't, everyone can't fight someone ahead of them or nobody fights. You know, it's like, do you get anything, you know, I feel like there's part of it's like, well, if I'm number eight and I beat number 11, there's, I don't really gain anything out of it. It's like, if you beat the shit out of the number 11 guy in the world, that could give you a title shot or one more than a title shot, right? It's like everyone, you know, guys want to just fight ahead thinking that's what's going to get them up. But you look at like a lot of guys who ended up becoming ranked, never having fought ranked fighters, right? They just beat the shit out of good guys and they're and people are like oh no that guy that guy's for sure one of the best guys in the world right i think that's you know kind of well i guess with like islam mac islam makachev just got i mean he immediately they got thrown into top five just to like i think the ufc just wants to force people to take him on so he's taking on hooker i think at the end of november yeah but uh to to go to both you're talking about Bilal. Um, he just, he just, I think he's stepping in to fight Sean Strickland cause Luke Rockhold just dropped out. Really? Yeah. He called him Good out. He said, him, man, that, yeah, Bilal that. said he'll step in for that fight against Sean Strickland. And that guy, Sean Strickland is an absolute beast and he's really up and coming right now. Yeah. He, uh, he trains with a good friend of mine, uh, from Canada, uh, Aaron Jeffrey and, uh, Aaron Jeffrey's like one of his main sparring partners. That guy looks like a psycho when he gets in there, man. Yeah. Like, I can scrap for sure. I I feel we could talk about that for 20 minutes, but because the guy, I don't know if he's actually psychotic or not, but he's a lunatic on the microphone after. Yeah. Um, Okay, so so let's let's jump ahead kind of to my last question, and this is more focused on what are your thoughts of this celebrity boxing thriller and this uh, stuff uh, Oscar De La Hoya is trying to, you know, you know, uh, attack Dana White as well, but it's more on the trailer site. What's the consensus in your gym when people see this going, going on? So for, for me personally, like 
there are definitely good and good things and then like eye roll things like some of the good things are it brings a lot of celebrity eyes to combat sports right brought a lot of eyes to tyrone woodley and and then back to the ufc you know it gives guys who are on the tail end of their career opportunities to cash you know kind of cash out before they 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 retire like tyrone woodley's got to be retiring soon he made some good money vitor belfort's got to be retiring soon he just made some good money but when you see when you see a almost 60 year old man evander holyfield whether he was a world-class boxer or not you see a 60 year old man get in there against a you know a suspiciously jacked 40 year old (laughs) like it's suspiciously come on juiced up vitor belfort dude it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. It's not like we, he hasn't tested positive like 20 times already. Like, come on, man. Like, and I'm a Vitor fan. Like, dude, he was one of my, he was, his fight against Marvin Eastman was one of the two fights that got me in MMA. So I'm a huge Vitor Belfort fan. But like, if Andrew Holyfield's like almost a senior citizen, dude, like, no, he has no business getting punched in the head by a man who's just barely out of his prime. No, I don't want to see that. And I know it was like a last minute fight because, Oscar De La Hoya pulled out, but it's like, come on, man. We don't need to see, like, don't you dare sign these old guys like this. Come on, man. Leave them alone, please. Like it's the, you know, little, little bit of a going show with, with that. Um, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's kind of a cash grab right now, but I, I guess your point does make sense. It is bringing eyes back to the UFC. Yeah. I mean, yeah, whether, whether, you know, I, I'm, I know it seems like Dana doesn't like it, but I think it does bring eyes back to back to MMA, back to UFC, more eyes on guys. So, you know, it's almost like it, it although I'm not a big fan of it, it's almost like the no, no press is bad press type thing, you know, like, yeah. you know, you know. And, and um, just the, the last question, you see kind of Dana White and Oscar Dale, De La Hoya going back and forth, especially in the press conferences. Um, and we discussed before, we're not going to go down the route of fighter pay because you're new to the UFC and that that's fine. We, we don't need your opinion on that, but what is your opinion on Oscar De La Hoya's stance coming at the UFC and saying they don't pay their fighters enough. And then Dana White comes back and says, yeah, but you can check our our purses. We're we're paying our our fighters evenly across the cards. Meanwhile, your cards pretty much the main event takes ninety five percent of the purse. So go look at the guy you know that was fighting sixth. He's making nothing. And and the, this is the back and forth argument. What's your stance from that perspective? No, that that is true. Um, you know, I'm, I'm. It's cool to see guys in boxing like. Canelo make $20 million. You know, I don't know if he's made that much, but like that as an example, right? $20 million a fight from guys like that's not unheard of. But like you said, three fights earlier on the card, a guy's making, you know, six grand or something potentially, right? Like there is some massive disparity in in boxing. Like I don't think boxing has the answers for pay for MMA because how many, you know, undefeated world champions, like, oh, this guy was an undefeated world champion. It's like, no one's ever heard of him. And now he works at like a store. It's like, yeah. You know, I know a bunch of guys that are like elite level. I, I was the WBO, WBU, this world champion. It's like, dude, you're who are you? You know, I, I don't know who you are. Versus, you know, there are guys in the UFC who've never touched a belt, and you know, they they probably can't walk into a mall without getting, you know, asked for photos, right? Yeah. So, and and that's kind of my my stance as well. It seems like the UFC is it's more 
There's more equality, at least. I think there's, you know, there's definitely more power behind the UFC name. So people are going to watch UFC fights regardless of who's fighting. Like decently hardcore fans are going to watch most cards, right? Not necessarily just tuning in for the fighters, but they're tuning in for the brand. Whereas that's not really the case in boxing, right? You turn, tune in for the fighter. Yeah, you tune in for the Mayweather fight. You turn in for Canelo. You're not turning, tuning in consistently for Showtime boxing, right? Yeah, and that's especially with the UFC. Some of these cards are absolutely stacked. Even this one coming up, I think in November, there's like five massive fights on it. Uh, I think Petra Yang, Cody Sanhagen, Hooker, Islam Makachev. I think it's Usman Covington. Like this card's going to be ridiculous. Okay, so it's getting late on your side. It's got to be, it's got to be almost midnight. So again, thanks a lot for joining us because you are we're we're in Thailand, Phuket. So it's like 10, 30, 11 a.m. here. It's almost midnight on your side. Um, so we'll we'll end it here and hopefully we'll catch up again um, on your maybe when your next contract and fight is announced and we can uh, have a little bit of chat about that then. Um, so Mike, thanks a lot for joining us. If there's anything else you, you want to say in terms of where people can find you, your information, if they want to follow you on Instagram, uh, just let us know or we can plug that for you as well. Okay. Yeah. My, uh, my Instagram is, uh, Michael, uh, Michael dot Malott. That's where I, you know, do most of my social media. I'm not a big Twitter guy, but, uh, yeah, follow me on there for keeping keeping up to date. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to watch the full video on YouTube, come visit our channel, Fruiting Body Podcast. We can also be found on Instagram at Fruiting Body Podcast. Please be sure to share and follow this podcast with friends and family. Thank you very much.